Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. It is a beautiful day in upstate New York. It could not ask for a better day as far as the weather. And I just came in actually from weed whacking. I've been uh, researching some things uh, this morning and I just, I couldn't do it. They have a window here and I kept looking outside and I spent like two hours trying to find a source I couldn't find. I just said, that's it. I'm going outside. I'm doing something out there. And while I was out there, I I put on um, my headphones and my earmuffs and I had uh, previous... um, uh, Lee this morning, someone reached out to me and say, did you see what TGC put out there, the Gospel Coalition? And I hadn't, and it was a debate uh, on the woke church. In fact, the question being debated was, is woke church a uh, stepping stone to theological compromise? And I had put out a video, I, I don't think I referenced it in the podcast, I had just talked about it, maybe I did talk about it in the podcast, I had teased this video from A.D. Robles, where he, he makes some predictions about this debate series that Gospel Coalition is putting on, and he said that Basically, he thinks that these debates in general are not not going to be framed properly. And I think he was right on with this one. I mean, that's not even a great question. The question is, is woke church a compromise, not whether it's a stepping stone? So that kind of even cushions it a bit. It, it makes it uh, it's softer. Uh, so it's not as bad if it's just a stepping stone. Um, secondly, he said, though, that he thought that the debates weren't going to be serious. And I think that's true. Uh, this one definitely came across to me as not a serious debate. I don't even think it qualifies as a debate. Uh, there, there wasn't a debate format. You had two people making a presentation, and then you have someone who's just asking them questions. There's, there's not an opportunity for uh, rebuttal and uh, asking questions of one another in cross-examination. There, there wasn't a closing statement. It was just it was short. It was uh, some opening statements and then just some discussion between a, a moderator. And the, the purpose, AD said, for these were, were going to be to defend the Gospel Coalition, to defend Big Eva, to uh, show that really the problem's not in here, it's out there. Uh, we don't have compromise here. And that's really what this did, in my opinion. After you listen to it, you think, okay, well, uh, the people in Big Eva that are accused of pushing this are falsely accused. And the real issue is out there. And if the church has any problems, if 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 Gospel Coalition, the people who would read that, have any problems, it's that they don't lament probably enough. They're not, um, especially the older ones, they're just not uh, as uh, repentant as they need to be when it comes to racism and treating the LGBT people wrong and that. So so I think it served the purpose AD said it would serve, which was sad to me. Uh, and, and the guy they had debating, and I don't, I don't want to, because I, I don't know whether or not this was if he was complicit in this or if he he was being used or if he 
just, I don't know. It's it's weird, and I'll show you the opening statement. And it, it, it he says a few things that are similar to this opening statement throughout the debate that are just weird. But he seems to be aware of the fact that he is not in the same category as Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, his name is Sean DeMars, and he's a pastor. And let me just show you what, what he says to begin this whole thing. Uh, this is what Sean DeMars says. So allow me to begin by doing what I do best, embarrassing myself. I'm being completely serious when I say that I have no idea why I'm here. I've not written extensively on the subject of wokeness. I'm not part of any organization fighting on the front lines of the woke wars. I'm not in any Twitter spats or Facebook beefs over this stuff because I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. Moreover, I'm not a subject matter expert in the field of critical theory, which I'm just going to be using synonymously with wokeness. I'm not a subject matter expert in any field related to any kind of critical studies. And to be honest with you, I'm not really any kind of expert at all. I don't have a PhD, unlike my uh, interlocutor here who has a PhD from Cambridge, which is in England. Uh, I don't have a seminary degree. I don't have a Bible college degree. I don't have a high school diploma. But I am a pastor, which means that I've had to reckon with this. I've had to think through it. I've had to think about how the gospel applies to this stuff in my local church. Okay, that is, you just want to just give the award for winning to Rebecca McLaughlin at that point. So you don't, I know you didn't say anything yet, but you, you, you just got the best reason to not listen to Pastor Sean here uh, from his opening statement that he's just not qualified, but he's a pastor. That's what he's got. And the thing is, I, I think it's fine. If you're a pastor and you've thought through this, then that's great. And maybe you, you can be capable. Uh, but there are people who are pastors who have written on this. There are people who are in academia who have written on this and have books published. And why aren't they there? It's a weird thing to me to, to have the representative of the other side be someone who doesn't really have any claim. How did he get chosen? What was the process for thinking this is the guy that we need? Furthermore, the statement you heard him made, well, she's from England. You hear a lot of remarks like that throughout this whole thing. Uh, he references movies, um, I think twice. Uh, which is fine. It's not wrong. It's just he's a fish out of water, though. You you have this is supposed to be an intellectual debate on woke church and then broadly speaking, critical theory, social justice, and it's like a youth pastor trying to debate uh, a a professor. That's what it feels like, and it, it's it just seems mismatched. It seems lopsided. It seems like why did you pick that guy to be the representative of the people who are critical of social justice? So he he goes on from there. And he talks about the definition for social, well, it's not social justice, for wokeness. It just, it's, it's kind of convoluted. It's kind of confusing. He doesn't do a great job articulating it, in my opinion. It, he does okay. Uh, but he doesn't go for the jugular then on why this is a threat. He talks about syncretism a little bit, uh, how oh, these ideas from the world can syncretize with it, at least that possibility exists. But he doesn't tell you where or who is doing the syncretizing. Uh, and what that looks like in the church. He doesn't talk about the false gospel of merging categories of law with grace. He doesn't talk about uh, justice being turned on its head and how that's a threat to the gospel as well, because then you put God in the position of not being a just God. He doesn't grant salvation to everyone, but yet things are supposed to be equitable and God's not equitable. 
Uh, he doesn't talk about, um, he, he mentions standpoint theory. He kind of in passing mentions postmodernism, but he doesn't really talk about how that's a threat directly to objective truth upon which the idea of our doctrines of revelation and inspiration and inerrancy uh, and, uh, and sufficiency of scripture upon which all of these things rest. He, he doesn't go there. He just, so they don't get down to the root issues involved. And, and, and there's more that could be said, but he, he doesn't go into that stuff really. It's more, it's more surface level. It's more like it, it can cause people to partner with some bad things we all know are bad. Like we shouldn't be affirming the LGBTQ agenda and everything that they want, uh, which I mean, Gospel Coalition is, I would say that they've been soft peddling like same sex attraction and stuff, but they, uh, but they would large, they would agree with that. Like we, we don't want to go beyond what clearly is designated in the Bible as, uh, you know, like transgenderism. They would say like that, that's clearly there's male and female. Um, yeah. And they, yeah, I know there's soft peddling of some, some weird things of gender dysphoria and stuff here and there, there's little weird sparks of that, but it's, they're, they're not going to come out on the record and say that. So he doesn't, what, what his critique is not a very hard hitting critique. It doesn't, go to the heart of what the Gospel Coalition or Big Eva, meaning the evangelical industrial complex, meaning the people who have uh, a platforming in evangelical circles, it doesn't get to the heart of what they've been doing and what's been happening in those institutions. And so, um, and, and then uh, let, let's just skip ahead because it's it, so much of this can be summarized and it's just not, in my opinion, that interesting. But um, let me get to, I believe this is this is the later part of his opening remarks. Listen to what uh, Pastor Sean here says about conservatives. And uh, and so he's, he's supposed to be arguing against wokeness. What does he say about those who are, have opposed wokeness? So, so you'd think the people he's representing. Possible unity, there is an uptick in anger, shame, confusion, enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, factions, and envy. And don't even get me started on the way that some of my conservative brothers and sisters have failed to appropriately, Christianly, respond to this threat and have only made it worse. So that's, that's just, when I heard that, I was like, that's exactly what I would expect from the person representing the conservatives. They're, they're going to scold their side for being too uh, mean about this. And, and they're not going to give specifics, but they're just going to scold them. And, and so you have scolding from not just Rebecca McLaughlin, but you have it from Pastor Sean DeMars. And so um, that's, that's the purpose, I think, that this whole thing serves. It, it, it really does. It, it rains on those people who, I mean, he's, he's, he's taking pot shots. He's, he's talking about people who would uh, create division within the church by um, introducing uh, unbiblical things, but he doesn't get specific and he kind of has this equal attention, this equal problem with it. It's that, that old thing of, um, that, that I saw in, uh, the, the recent book that we did, we went through on this podcast that T4G was giving out by Isaac Adams. Uh, we, it's the same thing that we've seen in, um, other gospel coalition articles. Um, the Thaddeus Williams book, I saw this to some extent. It is kind of like, really overemphasizing the problem is the rhetoric. The problem is uh, how mean we are when we communicate with one another and we just don't treat each other well. Well, yeah, I mean, that can happen. But is that the root issue? Is that what's causing the division? It's not. 
The division is being caused because people are in diametrical opposition to one another. The division is being caused because there's actual false teaching that's entered into the church. And those who are the dividers are the ones that are responsible. Those who are responsible for the division are the ones bringing the false teaching. It's never the people who are trying to hold on to orthodoxy. They're not the ones responsible. So it, it this is the um, emphasis. And, and it continues. There's more statements like this that are made. Uh, and then you have Rebecca McLaughlin giving her statement. And she basically, she shames the other side. In fact, she spends less time describing what wokeness is uh, than Pastor Sean. Pastor Sean gives kind of a description uh, and he gets into more critical theory and, and what uh, what this accomplishes. And Rebecca McLaughlin basically just says that, well, it's it's not the same as critical theory because it just means being aware of our history, being aware of the way that minorities have been mistreated. And that's all that wokeness is. That's never all that wokeness was. That's, that's a mischaracterization. <clears throat> wokeness was always... Uh, looking at the world through these new set of glasses with these new set of assumptions that see systemic racism or oppression of other kinds. Uh, it started with racism. Uh, in every institution, it's it's the ideology thing. It's adopting that ideology where you just flatten everything into connecting it to oppression. And, and then when you become aware of that, then when you're woke, you do something. You become an activist to try to totally revolutionize society. That's what wokeness has always been. That's what you get when you read Woke Church. It's not like there haven't been things published on this. It's not like there wasn't a book written by Eric Mason applying this to evangelicalism. They don't even mention Eric Mason, though, in this entire thing. And there's a lot to talk about with Eric Mason. He says in his book, he, he says that the church should be looking to these secular organizations for how to apply the gospel even. It's total false teaching, and yet it's not even mentioned. It's just weird to me. Uh, let me just uh, go to a few little clips here. So Rebecca McLaughlin, here's, I think, the heart of what Re Rebecca McLaughlin's saying. I disagree that we are. But I believe that if we look at the, the history of our forebears in the church, we will find a history of profound theological compromise when it comes to questions of race. We will find a history of slavery, a history of segregation, a history of explicit racial prejudice and discrimination built into our legal systems. And, and most tragically, we will find a history of white Christians who look and sound like me being deeply complicit in this. Let me skip ahead just a little bit here. I'm going to just give you a few. She goes along these lines for a while. All white elementary school, while hundreds of white parents shouted racial slurs at her issued death threats against her. And while she, God bless her heart, prayed for their forgiveness because that's what she'd been raised by her Christian parents to do. You might say, I wasn't there. But you know what? Our parents were, our grandparents were, our great-grandparents were. If you, like me, are a white evangelical, this is our tribe. And then she uh, uses that to say that white evangelicals got to repent of this, need to repent of this. Bring us into a place where we can actually learn from what the scriptures are telling us and where we can in the right ways repent. It should be second nature to us as Christians to repent and to believe. That is how we come to Jesus in the first place. And yet we find it so hard to do when it comes to the history of our tribe. 
So that is the crux of the argument. Uh, your grandparents did some bad things. Your dad and your mom did some bad things. You're guilty for those things. Uh, and you need to repent. And so what she does is she gives, she sets up, here's the, here's the analysis. Here's the, the expectation. You must believe that this is who you are as a result of your parents and grandparents' uh, supposed complicity in these things. And because of that, uh, you today are to sit in that guilt, to lament. Now, she doesn't go as far as to say and do reparations and defund the police and take down a monument. And she doesn't do that, right? But we know that this kind of analysis just leads to that. Because if, if Christ isn't enough to assuage that guilt, then, and you got to sit there and, and lament, you're going to look for ways to get rid of the guilt. And you're going to go towards doing some penance of some kind. And it's going to be redistribution, whether it's money or resources, or it's just privilege. Uh, we got to diversify our elder board. It's, it's going to be those kinds of things. And so that's what she's doing. This is a core of the social justice arguments in the church. I think she expresses it well, but it's a flawed argument and it needs to be hit out of the park and say, look, what you're saying is absolutely wrong. It is out of step with biblical teaching. Even if what you're saying is all true, which I would disagree with that, but even if what you're saying is all true, then um, it doesn't mean that just because you're white today, you just bear the brunt of all this. Think about it this way. All right. Let me, let me just give you a few examples uh, that to apply her logic to other people groups. If you're black, uh, are you then guilty of what your ancestors have done? Well, what have my ancestors have done? Well, someone had to sell uh, your ancestors into slavery somewhere along the line. That would have been other people in Africa. That had to have taken place somewhere along the line. So does that mean that, and those people were black, so you're black, therefore you must bear the brunt of that. Um, how about um, how about some of the pagan religions? I just saw yesterday an article. Uh, they found a mass grave in Mexico. I think it was probably a, a Aztec ritualistic cleansing ritual of some kind where they decapitated a thousand women. <laughs> they just found all these dead decapitated skeletons. Uh, when Western peoples were coming to these areas that they had never been to before and they're watching some of the things that are happening, they would use terms like their they're savages because that's what they would have thought in their minds. Um, are your ancestors, if you're Hispanic or you have uh, blood from the Aztecs in you, I mean, are you just now, do you need to do penance for that? Is that something now that that guilt is upon you? Every people group has something like this. And they, so, so what is the determining factor as to whether or not you need to lament and spend time lamenting? and have you know part places on the calendar where you just spend the day or the week or the month lamenting about what you've done or your ancestors have done that's kind of that's the crux of this the other thing though i thought about too is just that his, historically this this bothers me that every time this is brought up i've never seen in evangelicalism a discussion as to why there was segregation why there was slavery why it couldn't be ended in a in a uh, immediate way um, the assumption seems to always be that it's just hatred for minorities and there was an unwillingness to end it uh, because uh, they just hated minorities somehow and wanted to use them. And like segregation is the same thing. It's just it was in place because they just hated minorities. And there's there's a there's a kernel of truth to some of this. There was hatred. There was uh, ethnic partiality and stuff like that. But there's also something else that's going on that's bigger. There's a number of factors that are bigger. For instance, we have a modern state today. That can just, you can pass a law and you can change everything. Go, you have court cases now that can change everything overnight. 
That's what we're dealing with with this Roe v. Wade thing. You didn't have that in a decentralized form of government that existed during the time of American slavery. In fact, the people that wanted to end it had to do, think about progressive ways to end it. They knew if you ended it immediately, you crashed the economy. It wouldn't be good for the slaves. They, did, they lacked the responsibility necessary for self-government. Uh, they knew that... Um, it was uh, the society that existed at that time would not have accepted them. And so the Western territories were a better place to put them. But the Republican Party wanted the Western territories for free white labor. They didn't want black people there. So that created a problem. And there was no plan to emancipate while integrating into society and compensating uh, the masters who uh, owned the labor of these slaves. So you have these complexities that never get discussed. It's just assumed, well, we're just evil. It's just sinful. That's all it was. Uh, that's why they lack the moral fortitude to end this institution. When in reality, there's a lot of whole, whole lot of people that wanted to end it, uh, and they just they didn't know exactly how to go about doing it because it formed organically, not through the coercion of a modern state. Um, when it comes to segregation, you, you don't hear about uh, all you hear is it was just hate. It was hate. But I, I was reading just the other day a poll from I think in 1967 uh, of or maybe it was 1969. Black people were just as uh, just as against interracial marriage as white people were. I thought that was interesting. So what this means is it was more than we just want to create a system to benefit white people and uh, threaten everyone else, oppress them somehow. There was something else going on in this. There was assumptions that existed that don't exist now. Assumptions related to uh, your responsibility and the identity conferred by your racial group. And um, I'm sure, and it goes beyond that, I'm sure. I mean, uh, we, we had dueling even uh, 150 years ago. There were still some places where dueling would happen, where you would defend the honor of your, of your family. Uh, th there was a sense of responsibility that existed then that doesn't exist today, and a sense in which your identity was shaped by your people, uh, including the, the racial ethnic makeup. That just doesn't exist today. And it's not for the purpose of this podcast to get into all that. But the assumption, all I'm pointing out is the assumption is always, uh, with, I can't think of an exception. It's always that we, the past is a horrible place that uh, was in which it was a regular, not just common, not just even regular, but it was part of the, the um, it was fundamental is what it was. It was fundamental and definitive. Uh, that everything was based upon uh, the oppression of minorities, that that was the whole intent, the whole purpose. And, and your grandparents are just totally guilty. I don't care if they were farming out in the middle of nowhere and they, they're guilty. I mean, one of the things she brings up is uh, a lynching. And she says, you know, your grandparents and your parents, they would have gone to that lynching. They would have gone for, you know, the Sunday lynching and had their picnic. And well, it's like, you know, did your grandparents do that? I mean, mine didn't. Um, not that I'm aware of. Uh, they were too far out in the country to even do anything like that. The places that probably did happen, uh, it would have been seen. I mean, this seems barbaric today, but it would have been seen as a public spectacle to, to teach lessons to everyone, including children, that you don't you shouldn't do what this person did or this will happen to you. It was uh, a deterrent. And so it, it was seen as uh, a way to train children and as a reminder to people of, you know, don't steal, don't do whatever this person did or else you're going to get this kind of punishment. Don't murder, whatever. Um, so and in the cases where there was unjustified, illegal lynchings of minorities for uh, horrible reasons, which did happen, uh, you know, if your grandparents were involved, 
uh, in that kind of thing, which maybe some of you in this audience do have grandparents that were involved. It doesn't mean that you're guilty for what your grandparents did. I'm sorry. We're called to honor our parents. Uh, we can look at what they did and we can, um, we can honor the things that we can honor, but it doesn't mean that we take their, all the bad things that they uh, participated in. And then we just uh, sit in the guilt of it. And we, uh, we can we use that as the, the defining thing that defines even who we are today, and we bear the guilt of it, and we have to do something to amend it. And no, I'm sorry. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches the sins of the parents. So even best case scenario here for Rebecca McLaughlin, if all these things are all true, which I, I think it's more complex than that, as I've said, but even if the whole picture she's painting is all true, um, all that means is at the end of the day that okay, we, let's not do that again. You know, are the Egyptians, the Coptic uh, churches supposed to be just having their time of lament for what they did to the Jews? And, you know, are, every group would have a, a, a reason to do this. I mean, are the Anglicans going to apologize to my Puritan forefathers? Uh, are, uh, you know, are, I mean, I have a conflict, I guess, in myself, since I have people on both sides of the Civil War. Are my, are, are the, is the northern side of my family supposed to apologize to the southern side of my family for burning their homes and, you know, invading them and, and stuff like that? Because or, or, you know, vice versa or, you know, how, how do you want to cut this? How, how long do you want to because you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life and you're going to cut the, the pie so many different directions. You're going to slice it so many different ways that you're going to be just apologizing to all kinds of people groups for all kinds of things. Um, that, that's the whole problem. Uh, with this, and rather than hit it out of the park and say this isn't biblical, uh, that you know Jesus has uh, taken on the sin that I am complicit in, that I do repent for, but the sin that I haven't done, I don't need to repent for. This is what we get. <laughs> Listen to this. I just want to start Rebecca by saying uh, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your ministry, for your writing. I agree so much with what you said up there. And I know that that's the heart of this whole dialogue is to show that we're really on the same team and there's just a variation of difference. But I felt it as I was listening to you. So I, I just love you and I'm so thankful for you. That's the heart of this whole dialogue. That's the heart of it. And, and I think that's exactly what AD said when he was predicting what would happen with these quote unquote debates. This isn't a debate. This is this is a session to just, well, you heard it right there to show that we're really on the same page, but we're not. That's the whole problem. We're not on the same page. There's false teaching that's coming in. In fact, you just heard some false teaching. How about you correct it? But it's instead this like great appreciation. This, this is, this is why we're having, this is not going to satisfy anyone. It's just going to create more problems because they're not getting to the heart of these issues. Uh, and they're pretending like they're so secondary, it's not really that big of a deal. When you hear something like that, that's, I mean, he's not just talking about her personally. He's talking about what she just said. Um, all right. So let's let's just skip ahead here. Um, here's another thing that, that clued me in. To, I was like, wow, the, the, this guy is not uh, a fair representation of uh, the anti-social justice side. Something better here now. So what is, what is, she mentioned lamenting, you agreed yeah. with that. What does yeah. lamenting and repent, lamenting as opposed to repenting look like today for church leaders? Yeah, so I, I, I appreciate her point because um, not saying that I found the perfect middle, right? But the position that I often find myself in, a pastor in Alabama, a student of history, a victim of racism in various ways, like uh, on... Uh, I feel like I'm having conversations with some Christians to the left of me where I'm like, 
eh, that's not helpful. Don't say that. You don't know where that comes from. And then I'm having conversations with people who are conservative to the right of me who uh, they're just entirely ignorant of so many different things. And they're kind of cold and calloused and they just kind of repeat the Fox News bylines. And I'm, I'm like, well, hey, you should actually read this book. And like, you should be really sad about these bad things that happened in our backyard. And uh, yeah, I want our people to lament more. We pray prayers of lament in our church. I highly recommend Mark Vergop's book on lament, particularly as it's related to uh, racial injustices. He's recommending Mark Vergop, who, when I was on Twitter, he blocked me when I used to be on Twitter, because <laughs> Mark Vergop is woke. And so he's recommending woke resources He's saying that we do we do the thing Rebecca's saying. We do all the you know the lament thing. So it, it makes me scratch my head. It's like, well, you're buying into the analysis, then why not just go the extra step? And and if if you're doing the lament thing, and this is so horrible, all all the the horrible racial things that have happened, then you know what what is there today to lament? Is it it's got to be some kind of a disparity? I mean, it's not, this isn't just contained in what happened in the past. This is having an ongoing effect on the people in the church who are doing the lamenting. So is it a disparity that, that exists today? Is it, what state of affairs is it that's wrong? And it, once you start doing that, if you go down the path of there's a state of affairs today that's wrong because of, uh, then you're going to want to figure out a way to change it. What's the way that's going to change it? This just, I, I, I see the seeds of what ends up when it blooms becoming wokeness planted here. And he, the resources he's even recommending would would totally go in that direction. So uh, I, just, I just thought, man, this guy is not a, a good he's not articulate on this issue, uh, at least from from our side. And he's he's admitting here the reason for this whole discussion and kind of where he sits in it. Uh, let's let's go. Here, here's another thing he says. Argument, you talk about your conservative brothers and sisters who are making things worse. And, and it's important because because here we are members of the body of Christ. We are... By the way, I got to say, Rebecca McLaughlin at no point in this debate starts talking about how she's just so... She talks about like, um, like, like the churches that are like LGBT affirming, you know, having, having issues, but she can only do it in while condemning the the more conservative church it's it's always paired with uh well we're not going to find our solutions in the world we're not going to find them from these uh mainline denominations um but the the real reason that people are looking for solutions there is because we failed it's all us it's she just takes it's all the guilt of the church it's all the the true church's guilt uh you see that throughout this whole thing and um so she she never she she, she doesn't do what uh, the pastor here is doing, where he's just, you know, taking time, emphasizing how uh, much, how unhelpful it is that these conservatives are, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just repeating Fox News talking points. Basically, they're dumb. They're, um, they're, their rhetoric is making everything worse. And, and, and it's like, yeah, but there's an actual theological compromise. There's false teaching. If you believe that, then you'll be taking a whack at it and you'll think that, wow, we the real problem, if you want to assess this accurately, is that people with position platform, uh, with power to do something, aren't doing it because they are, whether they're scared or they're, they agree with social justice, but they're not taking a whack at this stuff. So you have frustrated laymen who end up 
taking it out on social media or, you know, trying to combat it in the only way, only avenues they have available to them because of people like this who won't take a stand and won't take a really hard stand on this stuff. So it's just so skewed in my mind, the, the, the way that they view the landscape. So anyway, so, so here, here's like the third time it's going to be, you know, those conservatives, they're, they're just as guilty, if not more so, for the state of affairs and the conflict that's around us. On the same page about the large things, we are a part of the same kind of coalition. Um, I would like you to speak to the people to your right that you referenced. They're more con- conservative was the yeah. word that you used because yeah. what we hear, here's some, some common statements we've seen in the media, things like Southern Seminary has gone liberal and woke, Reformed Theological Seminary has CRT syllabi, Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition are the greatest threat to the gospel in our lifetime. Those are, the, those, are the, those are the things that are said yeah. by those people that you reference. How do you interact with that? Well, I- that is exactly what AD said. That is exactly, that's an interesting, <laughs> an interesting pause in the screenshot here. That is exactly what AD said was going to happen. It's going to be a shield. These debates are going to be used as a shield because of the Gospel Coalition, what AD said was, he goes, we forced, meaning him and and the people that listen to his podcast, he goes, we forced Gospel Coalition to do this because we kept pointing out all their their issues, how they were so compromised on these things. And now they're forced to respond to us, but the way that they're going to do it is they're going to take kind of like their own uh, friendly to them conservative and use that person in in a way to, to, to be that shield. To make the the conservative who's um, actually this is kind of a move you see on like MSNBC and CNN all the time where they have their their panel and then they have the conservative they bring up. But, you know, it's not really a conservative. It's it's someone who's like an MSNBC uh, contributor. You know, Megan McCain on The View is not a conservative. We know this. But she is the conservative on The View. Right. She's the representative for The View. So it serves to kind of soft pedal and and and. And, and make it look like, well, here's a true conservative. And even this true conservative knows that anyone who would be that crazy to say Tim Keller's compromise and a threat to the gospel is, you know, even that conservative sees that's silly. And that's exactly what you're going to find here. That primarily as a pastor, I've had these conversations with people who were upset at me for going woke, believe it or not, in my church, leaving the church. You're going woke. You're part of Big Eva with my church with less than a hundred people. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just, I'm always trying to walk the tightrope. I'm trying to have a uh, careful thought nuance. I'm uh, most often I'm saying, Hey, some of these guys that you're saying are woke. I know them. They're my friends. That guy discipled me. I had lunch with him last week. I heard him say this about that person. Trust me. He's not going woke at all. Um, we did an episode on this in, in my podcast. Maybe it'll end up as a gospel coalition article, but all right, let, let's just stop here. The, so, so trust me, I know these people. I'm part of the guild, so they're they're not woke. So, so there's, there's two options. One is you have no discernment, and two is well, they believe something totally different in private, and they're uh, they're not going to come out publicly and say it. Uh, so either way, it's it's just a it's bad for them. Um, you know, he's, he, he goes on and he talks about, you know, that you're, he even says, I think at one point, like you're crazy if you think Tim Keller's a threat to the gospel. No, he's not. And stuff we've pointed out though. Um, Tim Keller is, uh, in fact, I have the book it's sitting somewhere. Hold on. Yep. I got it right here. Um, 
I've been slowly going through this book called uh, Engaging Keller. Let me blow up the screen so people can see what I'm looking at here. Um, Engaging Keller. And uh, this goes through a number of things. This isn't even related all of it to social justice. Uh, and, and they try to make it clear. It's like, well, we're not saying Tim Keller's a heretic. But, but when you read these essays, you're like, well, how? Like, what, what other options are there? Um, rebranding the doctrine of sin. Uh, Soft-pedaling hell. Uh, um, bad analogies on the Trinity. Uh, the com conflating the church's mission with doing justice in the world. A bad hermeneutic. Theistic evolution. Uh, looking for ec ecumenicism. Um, and, and this was like in, what, 2014 or so when I think that came out. Uh, I did a whole section in my book, um, Christianity or uh, Social Justice Goes to Church on Tim Keller. And you see that not only was he a leftist, but uh, he buys into this version of Christianity from Tom Skinner at the very beginning, which is a false gospel. It's it's a uh, it's saying that the gospel uh, includes these these works, these social justice works. And you see Tom Skinner, you see Harvey Kahn, uh, the hermeneutical spiral, you see um uh, there was another individual. See, now I've written, wrote it a while ago, so now I'm blanking on my own uh, my own writing here. But it, the people who impacted him were not orthodox, uh, many of them. And and he takes these ideas and he makes them his own. And I mean, his his own idea of um, generous justice uh, puts God in a, in a very it puts it actually attacks God because what you're saying is that if we just owe the poor as much money as we can give away. And it's people who are poor have a claim on us because of their need. And because every person in the world is in need of salvation and God doesn't grant that, then God must not be into justice. I mean, it's it's super bad theology. And I would say, yeah, Tim Keller's a threat to the gospel. Um, but it's he, he thinks people that like me who would say something like that are crazy. All right. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's just finish this up. Um, yeah, we're, we're just going to go to one more clip, and then uh, we're going to end it. And here it is. I thought that can't be true. I thought that, that has to be. Oh, let me start here. Would 100% affirm. And it, it's, I mean, just to, to go personal for a second, I, I moved to America 14 years ago. And when I first heard that, white evangelicals in America were associated with racism, I thought that can't be true. Although that, that has to be slander against the people of God because it just, I couldn't believe it. And in, in the past sort of decade or so, as I've learned more, both from reading and from, from talking with black brothers and sisters in, in particular, the more I've, I've realized how much truth there has been in that. This is such an admission. I don't think she realizes it, but I, I wanted to just play this for you. All right. So if she hadn't done the, if she hasn't talked to these brothers and sisters, these particular brothers and sisters, and I guarantee it wasn't Bodhi Bakum she was talking to. Uh, I guarantee it, it wasn't someone who's um, blessed with more melanin, who's uh, conservative. Um, if, if she hadn't had these conversations uh, with presumably woke uh pastors and individuals, and she hadn't read these books, these woke books, she would have never thought that there was a racism problem in evangelicalism. That is so telling. That is so telling. 
uh, it's she can only know about the problem through having these conversations and reading these books. It's not something that would be obvious to her uh, just living in the United States. I think that that's extremely interesting uh, because it shows that you you have to, I think, you have to deny kind of what's right in front of you and buy into this narrative that you know, you, you don't don't believe what your eyes are seeing. Uh, step out on faith and believe these these other stories and these other analyses uh, analyses from other places. Uh, but don't don't trust your senses for what you're seeing. And is it possible someone with very little experience uh, could could not notice something very bad? Yeah, sure, it's possible. I mean, you could be going to a church, right? And you could be going there like a few months, and you could realize, wow, there's uh, after a few months, this is a this is a really bad place. There's really bad stuff going on, but you didn't notice it for the first few months. That's possible. But it doesn't take long. And with any degree of familiarity, you're going to figure that stuff out pretty quick. It doesn't take long. Uh, and so her admission, though, is that without these resources and with just her experience, she wouldn't have seen it. And I think that's very telling and very interesting and really actually is a, an argument against her point. Uh, the things she's complaining about, are they really problems? You know, are you going to believe your eyes on what you see or are you going to believe all these um, these stories in this narrative. All right. That's all I have for today. I hope that was helpful for you uh, in analyzing this particular debate. I think A.D. Robles was pretty spot on with his analysis, his predictions for what this was going to be. And uh, I'm sure he'll probably do a video on it too. I'm trying to beat him to the punch though. So <laughs> maybe I did. I don't know. Anyway, God bless. Uh, more likely coming this week. I'm not sure yet. I got a lot of them up to and um, if not this week, next week. So God bless. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.